0: Now, it's time for the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast with Dean Linke. The National Soccer Coaches Association of America is the go-to resource for soccer coaches of any level. From advocacy, education, and networking, the NSCAA has something for everyone. Join the world's largest soccer coaches organization today. Now, here's our veteran soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke.
1: Hello, college soccer fans and NSCAA coaches at all levels. This week we go a little bit more big picture as we get some very detailed and, shall I say, don't hold back opinions on the future of player development in this country, including college soccer's role in that development, and we get those opinions from perhaps the most successful college coach any sport, men or women, of all time. With 22 national championships to his name and who knows, some more coming, Anson Dorrance is truly a living legend. Now in his 38th year at UNC, Anton has amassed an amazing 804-66-35 record. He joins me to talk about what it was like building that powerhouse, how women's college soccer has evolved at such a rapid pace, and some well-defined opinions and thoughts on U.S. soccer's player development plan, the good and the bad. He, in fact, compares the current process to this country's current presidential race. Very interesting take from a fascinating man. Anson Dorrance does not hold back, and I promise that you will enjoy his interview. From there, we are joined by longtime Soccer America editor and writer Paul Kennedy, who previews the Division I men's and women's conference tournament scene, as well as teams and coaches to watch in this year's NCAA tournament. TopDoorSoccer.com's editor and D2 expert Travis Clark talks D2 men's and women's soccer. Chad Waller gives us his weekly update on NAIA men's and women's soccer, And finally, Eric Imler, who played for the legendary Bruce Arena at Virginia, winning three national championships and later making the 1992 U.S. Olympic team, is now working hard to create a smarter, more tactical soccer player at the U-12 and under level. He says that can change the college, professional and international soccer scene. Emu, as we call him, is on the show. Now, this week's show was recorded before the NSCAA rankings were released. So that means next week's show will recap all of the women's conference tournaments and preview the women's NCAA tournament and look ahead to the men's conference tournaments. So that's next week. But this week, we start with a legend. The great Anson Dorrance is up first after this message
0: the NSCAA is 75 years strong and continues to provide quality service and benefits to soccer coaches. Whether you're a youth, high school, college, or professional coach, the NSCAA works to be a voice for you. Speaking of voice, once again, here's Dean Linke. So this will be the first
1: time in our 10 episodes of the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast where we won't have the time to have a coach on from every level of college soccer. That's not because we don't want to, because we do, and we will continue to do just that. However, when you have a chance to have on perhaps the most iconic and successful college coach of all time, well, you have to change direction just a little bit. Anson Dorrance is a legend of the game, and, while well, he is still going strong. Here are his numbers, and stay with me on this. In 38 years as head coach of the UNC women's soccer team, Anson's record is 804-66-35. He has won 22 national championships. His teams have been in 27 college cups. He has won 21 ACC regular season titles, and he is searching right now for his 21st ACC tournament title. He has coached 19 National Players of the Year, and he is, let us please remember, the head coach of the 1991 U.S. Women's World Cup championship team. He is also a member of the 2008 U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame class and was presented with the NSCAA's prestigious honor award in 2010, And Anson joins me now. Anson, a pleasure to be with you.
2: Oh, Dean, thank you. And uh, you're very kind to review the resume. Uh, So thank you very much.
1: Well, it's so much fun. I love doing it every time I call one of your games as well. And speaking of that, here you go. You've made it to the Final Four of the ACC tournament. You've got Notre Dame this weekend. An interesting team this year during an interesting time. Let's first talk present day. Talk about your team. They seem to be rising to the top at the right time.
2: Yes, we uh, uh, were very concerned coming into this year in light of all the starters that we'd lost. Uh, we had five kids that graduated and signed pro contracts. Uh, uh, we had another all ACC player that decided to redshirt. Uh, and then uh, we lost two, our best two, to the U 20 national youth team. Uh, so we were really concerned coming in to be eight starters down from last year. And honestly, early in the year, we were very ordinary. Uh, and. Uh, All that's happened, honestly, is we've gotten a bit better. Uh, We're much more competitive now, and I couldn't be uh, more pleased.
1: Okay, this next question, Anson, defines your success, but it also shows what we've been talking about all season on our podcast, and that is women's college soccer has never been more competitive, more parity, with more quality than it is right now. And with that, this current senior class, if they don't win an NCAA championship, it'll be your first four-year class ever not to win one, which is simply amazing, Anson. What does that say, and how are you dealing with that fact.
2: Well, I think it certainly reflects what you shared earlier, that uh, the collegiate game is becoming a lot more competitive. But honestly, we have to do a better job uh, in uh, selling ourselves and in recruiting. All of us are adjusting to the early commitments, and I really felt like we'd made all kinds of mistakes. uh, By not encouraging the uh, early uh, commitments, Uh, a kid would visit us uh, in her freshman or sophomore year, and we'd be very reluctant to offer a scholarship just because uh, we weren't really in with both feet uh, with that. But we started losing recruit after recruit after recruit because we wouldn't make an offer, and uh, we've learned our lessons. So now uh, if a kid jumps in, uh, we're going to do our best to evaluate her before she lands in Chapel Hill uh, to look at our program and try to make a decision on what sort of scholarship to offer her. So we're doing a much better job now and making these decisions on a kid that wants to commit early. And it was us basically learning to adjust to the new landscape. I think we figured it out. I think when you start to look at our classes from here on out, uh, you're going to see a a much more uh, talented uh, Tar Heel team, and it's going to return closer to where we've been traditionally. So I think it was uh, honestly certainly the game becoming more competitive at a collegiate level, and uh, the other coaches and programs doing a better and better job. But it was also – our fault to not sort of change with the times, and if the times demand uh, you to you know make an offer to a freshman or a sophomore uh, uh, we're no longer going to wait uh, and then lose the kid just because uh, we're reluctant to pull the trigger so uh, it's as much uh, the climate that's out there as our own uh, poor recruiting philosophies, and uh, we've corrected them, uh, and I think you'll start to see our talent level return to where it used to
1: be. So it sounds like that same fire that brought you 22 national championships is still burning strong, Anson.
2: Oh, absolutely. And as all of us in the game enjoy, uh, is bringing a kid in whose ambition is to become the best she can be and then uh, try to nurture her to her potential. And, uh, yeah, we're always going to try to chase the best players we can, kids that have dreams of uh, you know, playing uh, at the highest possible level, and then we're going to do our best uh, to see if we can help, help her get there.
1: 38 amazing years as the head coach of the UNC women's soccer team. How hard is it, Anson Dorrance, to pick one or two top moments? Is that even possible?
2: Well, I guess uh, given the perspective of where I am now, uh, I can certainly pick them. Uh, I mean, honestly, uh, because of my wife's health issues during the 2012 season, uh, I'm certainly looking back to that one as a very special year because uh, the kids uh, on the team, uh, without any prompting from me, played for my wife. And that was a very special uh, uh, championship, Uh, also in light of the fact that uh, it was another U-20 national youth team year where they had taken uh, my two best in Crystal Dunn and Kalia Ojai. And we went as a a number two seed and proceeded to walk through uh, some fantastic number one seeds on the way to that national championship. And so I think uh, adversity uh, causes you to feel a championship is a lot sweeter. And so with all the adversity with that year, I felt, uh, you know, looking back, that's certainly a great moment. I also loved, uh, obviously, the construction of the U.S. into a world soccer power. Uh, When I was hired as a U.S. women's national coach, we had never won a game. And then when I retired, we were world champions. And just the process of uh, competing internationally, obviously there with Tony DiCicco and Lauren Gregg, two fantastic uh, coaches, uh, uh, we had a chance to impact on the evolution of the United States, and then to see Tony go on, to do even more and better things uh, than I did as a national team coach was very rewarding. He and I have remained great friends, as have he, uh, Lauren Gregg and I. Uh, so, so to be a part of that pioneering effort uh, for me was extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily special. Uh, I wish I, I had opportunities to continue to impact on uh, player development, and I guess uh, those things are uh, certainly highlights for me.
1: So many great players you have coached, April Heinrichs, Carla Overback, Mia Hamm, Christine Lilly, Heather O'Reilly, Tobin Heath, Crystal Dunn, the list is endless. How do you possibly, can you even pick out the best player you have ever coached?
2: Well, obviously, I, I would be very uh, uh, circumspect to try to, you know, select uh, just one. There are consensus opinions on uh, who ended up the absolute best, but I certainly don't want to weigh in on that, uh, uh, but I would certainly throw uh, Michelle Akers into the mix of players you just reviewed, because there are so many great ones out there. But I certainly don't want to get into that discussion for fear of hurting someone's feelings. But it's been an honor uh, to coach them all and uh, to be a part of their evolution, uh, and also to see uh, the ones uh, that are currently competing for the United States continue to improve, continue to compete in the world arena. For me... uh, uh, turning the TV on and watching these kids continue to compete at the highest level has been incredibly enjoyable for me.
1: All right, you already touched on it a little bit, but I want you to go a little bit deeper. Take us back to that 1991 World Cup, the build-up before it, how you assembled that team, how you put it together, and how you walked away with the, the first-ever World Cup title.
2: Well, uh, when I was brought in, uh, we already had a very good team uh, that uh, Mike Ryan was coaching. Uh, he was the great coach from the Northwest that had sort of developed an elite uh, senior collection of players that were outstanding. And a lot of his initial choices were certainly from his community, as they should be, uh, with some absolutely fantastic uh, young women that pioneered our game at an international level. And uh, what I brought into the mix was certainly uh, some of those players that he uh, developed, but uh, then the cream of the collegiate game. And um, obviously with my background in collegiate soccer, Uh, When I first started coaching, those were some of my first choices. And because of our own collegiate success, a lot of those choices were kids off my own roster. But there was a a youth movement uh, growing, and Hank Lung was my U-19 national youth coach back in the day. And we actually competed in some tournaments with and against his youth team. And uh, during one of these events, uh, his team actually won the event. They finished ahead of uh, my full team. And, of course, I'm looking at these young players, and everyone knows their names now, you know, Mia and uh, Christine and Julie, and and uh, all of a sudden, uh, <clears throat> Joy Fawcett, Carla Worden-Overbeck, <clears throat> and all of a sudden we're thinking, you know what, if we truly want to attain our potential, we've got to make some decisions early to bring in these young kids. And so back uh, when Mia was 15 and Julie Foudy and Christine Lilly were 16, we brought them into the U.S. full team. Uh, And I think that decision early to bring in youth players was a fantastic one because it really uh, uh, put us in a position to win that first Women's World Championship. And what I love about what Jill is doing now is the same thing. I loved in her last camp uh, all of the uh, youth exposure that she gave all these young kids to sort of fight their way onto the roster. Because one of the worst things you can do is to settle for uh, a veteran group and not really challenge them anymore. Uh, and I really like uh, what uh, Jill has done in bringing in the young kids because it has a twofold positive effect. First of all, it exposes the young kids to the next level, and then they get to decide how hard they want to work to try to attain that level for themselves. But it also lights a fire under the vets so the vets know that, you know, uh, um, I'm going to have to continue to grind away if I want to keep my spot. And I think it creates uh, what we've always felt was the critical secret sauce and player development, which is what I call the competitive cauldron. And I think uh, all those elements have added up to uh, creating a fantastic culture. Certainly when we started back in 91 or actually in the the, uh, mid to late 80s, uh, but also now with what uh, Jill's doing with her full team
1: roster. Well, I want to get more into the competitive cauldron, but I do want to talk about uh, your time with the national team one more time because I find it interesting. You know, he finally stepped away from the job as the head coach of the USA men's basketball team, Mike Krzyzewski. But back in the day when you were coaching the U.S. women, you used to get a lot of criticism. They said it was an unfair advantage to UNC as you were the coach. Reflecting on that, what do you remember about that criticism? and how do you compare that to what uh, Coach K had done for the last three Olympics?
2: It's absolutely a legitimate criticism from the perspective of collegiate parity. I mean, uh, there's a huge advantage that Krzyzewski enjoys by being the U.S. Olympic coach. And uh, I obviously feel there was a huge uh, advantage for me as the U.S. women's national coach, uh, uh, also coaching collegiately. But it is based on your success. There is a certain amount of pressure, uh, because if you're not successful, it doesn't really give you a recruiting advantage. So the advantage I enjoyed uh, was uh, certainly because I was in that position, but it was also because the team won the World Cup. Uh, we've had uh, other U.S. coaches uh, involved uh, with the U.S. full team uh, that are coaching and involved collegiately, and uh, it's always based on uh, on your ultimate success. And so it's sort of a double-edged sword, but it is a huge advantage. I mean, uh, I can see how easily Shashevsky. Uh, recruits right now, and it's an advantage enjoyed by, you know, many coaches that are involved uh, right now with national youth teams across the spectrum, but also with uh, Steve Swanson involved with the U.S. full team. Uh, These are massive advantages in recruiting, but obviously uh, if U.S. basketball and picking Shashevsky is picking a fantastic coach, and uh, U.S. soccer and choosing the people they're selecting to stay involved with their uh, teams are picking uh, fantastic coaches, and and they have every right to do that. Uh, they don't have to genuflect to the NCAA. They don't have to, you know, uh, assure uh, collegiate soccer to have parity. Just like uh, USA uh, Basketball doesn't have to assure that uh, NCAA uh, Basketball has parity. They have no uh, moral imperative to serve those masters. They're uh Moral imperative is to make sure they find the best coach they can to uh, help the United States compete internationally. So they do not have to genuflect. And so, uh, despite the uh, uh, criticism back in the day and even currently, U.S. soccer and USA basketball do not have to genuflect to the NCAA. They have a different uh, imperative, and they're following that uh, to the best of their uh, ability. And uh, they are picking good coaches. And so, uh, yes, we can all complain about a lack of parity, but then it's up to the NCAA to decide if they want to allow their coaches to coach at that level, knowing fully well they're giving... uh, You know, an enormous advantage to to these uh, men and women, and uh, that's a political decision that they get to make.
1: Okay, we mentioned that you coached the UNC men's team for 12 years, but uh, you're famous for what it takes to coach women. You already mentioned the CC, Competitive Cauldron. You've written books on coaching women. I've heard you speak about coaching women. You've got the floor. Tell us again when you recognize, hey, there's a big difference in what it took to spark the most out of women, and why you said, you know what? I want to coach women full-time.
2: Well, I enjoyed the chance to pioneer a sport and I knew that uh, uh, way back when the women's game was developing I had all kinds of opportunities. Early in my uh, women's uh, collegiate coaching career we were actually lobbying What was then the national governing body for the collegiate game in women's soccer, it was the AIAW, the Association of Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. The NCAA didn't even sponsor women's sports. And so I had a chance early to lobby the AIAW to consider starting a a national championship for women. And they did. I remember Chris Lidstone and I, the Colorado college coach, uh, who hosted the first uh, invitational national championship that wasn't – you know, a formal national championship. It was just a collection of what we thought were the best teams all assembled in Colorado uh, to compete in this invitational national championship. And we knew this was a necessary step for us to lobby with the AIAW leadership to have an official national championship for women. And he and I went to Detroit to lobby with uh, the uh, AIAW convention and the women's leadership to have a national championship for women. And what I loved about these uh, women that were uh, pioneering uh, collegiate women's sports is. Uh We made our pitch, uh, we left the room, we came back in, and all of a sudden we had a national championship for women, which is why even to this day, when people are, you know, sharing uh, how many national championships we've won, they bounce between 21 and 22, because if they say, you know, national championships uh, with the NCAA, it's 21, but if it's national championships in general, our kids have won 22, and I take great pride in that AIEW uh, national championship, because that was the first. It was the same as the NCAA championship, it was just, uh, you know, sponsored by two different organizations. Honestly, uh, if not for the AIAW, I don't know how long it would have taken for the NCAA to decide because they have all these rules for what percentage of the uh, Division I schools you know need to have a sponsorship in a sport before they have a national championship. And the AIAW wasn't restricted by those rules. They had guidelines, but they could see the emergence of this fantastic uh, participatory youth sport for girls and I think uh, they were very wise leaders to decide to adopt us well before we had the requisite numbers. So uh, you know, who lo- knows how long it would have taken uh, if uh, the NCAA was in a position to decide whether or not <laughs> women's soccer became a collegiate sport. So I'm very proud of uh, uh, the fact that I had a chance early to be involved in uh, these sorts of things to establish the women's game. And uh, I absolutely loved every opportunity because that was certainly one. And then the national team uh, was the other. I mean, there's no way I ever would have I've had a chance to coach the men's national team. So here I was as a young man uh, coaching uh, our women at an international level. And uh, so uh, the opportunities the women, women's game gave me uh, were so extraordinary. Uh, I owe so much of my lifetime enjoyment to uh, these doors that were thrown open for uh, anyone that was aggressive in promoting and uh, uh, rallying the women's
1: game. Well, right away, though, you did say you've got to coach women differently, and you did develop this competitive cauldron. Explain in Cliff Notes' version what that is and what the big differences are in coaching women.
2: Well, actually, this is where uh, I've received most of my criticism. Uh, uh, tragically, uh, in the early 70s, the feminist literature, uh, in an effort to try to get men and women treated equally uh, came up with this uh, uh, conclusion that men and women were this, the same and had to be coached the same. There's still a lot of advocates out there for this this movement because uh, they're so concerned about inequality that their agenda is driven by this, this final uh, platform of let's, you know, treat everyone equally. And then uh, they confuse things with the fact that, uh, well, if we uh, say that we're exactly the same, that, you know, this is going to achieve this goal a lot earlier. So, you know, I was a you know, a student in the seventies. And so I was, you know, had full buy-in with this philosophy that men and women were the same. And I was thinking, this is fantastic because I don't know anything about coaching women or women in general. So this is great for me as a men's coach to know that men and women are the same. <laughs> so all of a sudden I jumped into the women's game with both feet and, uh, you know, proceeded to coach them just like the men. And it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> so, uh um, I've learned that, you know, there are, you know, subtle differences, not enormous differences, and we all live on a continuum, so it's not like every single woman is different from every single man and the way they should be led and treated and driven and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but the differences, uh, of the subtle differences, I do think, impact in a very real way, and so, you know, after, you know, I'm not an idiot, you know, after making one mistake after another and coaching the women by treating them the way I would treat men, uh, uh, I decided to, uh, you know, things had to change, and so what evolved over time was just uh, uh, anyone in a leadership position with any collection of people, uh, when you're seeing something not working, uh, you change the button you're pushing, and so I kept you know, changing buttons until uh, um, I'd come to a philosophy of how I was going to uh, coach and uh, lead the women that was uh, uh, subtly different from uh, the men, but different enough uh, that uh, I think... Uh, the competitive cauldron is actually a great idea. The biggest challenge in, uh, I guess, developing elite women is to get them to embrace the fact that uh, competition uh, should be fierce in practice against your friends. Women have the superior understanding that their relationships are more critical than, you know, their their player development. So they're not willing to sacrifice their relationship with their teammates by, you know, destroying them in practice. So part of what we have to create is to get them to embrace the fact that competition is critical for their growth, and the way we did that is just by keeping score not by you know driving them with the intensity of your own personality from uh you know in a practice session or in a game, which is what uh a lot of male coaches do uh they're you know they've got the these fiery personalities, and men respond uh some men respond to that, many men, in fact. So a lot of my coaching platforms changed a bit because my personality in coaching men was certainly the way I led men, uh, which was a very aggressive personality, which certainly doesn't work, uh, in trying to get uh, your young women to their potential. So the cauldron was cool because uh, now all of a sudden it was the numbers that were driving them. And one of my favorite statements of a kid that went 180 in terms of her competitive fire, was Carla Warden Overbeck? She came into me her freshman year as Carla Warden, and um, she was a fantastic player. Um, I started her as a freshman, but she really struggled to compete in practice, not because she wasn't a, a good player, but because she wanted to be everyone's friend. So she, in all of our 1v1 ladders, uh, never won a 1v1 game. And then her senior year, she never lost a one v one game. And there's no way she had that kind of, you know, uh, I guess, game transformation. All she decided between her freshman and senior year was to compete. And I read a newspaper article where she was interviewed, uh, and I remember her saying, because I actually wrote it down, she said, uh, you know, she was sick and tired of seeing her name at the bottom of a list, and it basically the cauldron gave her permission to compete. Who knows what you know different reasons of. the different athletes need to to get to their potential but the cauldron gives every woman the permission to compete because uh, everything is publicly posted in our system of competition and it gives them permission to go after each other in practice so as a result if you want to develop an elite player your practice intensity is going to really reflect uh, where your game's going to go in a competitive match And I think uh, that was one of the tools I used to uh, help our women get to their potential. But that's just a tiny little, uh, you know, insight. Uh, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, you know, wrote Lean In, and in the most politically correct way, uh, she's saying, you know, very similar things to what I'm trying to say in my very unsophisticated way. (laughs) Uh, And here's, you know, an extraordinarily elite woman that understands the minefield that she had to go through to become uh, uh, a leader in her own culture and uh, a leader, you know, in the culture of men. And she's virtually saying the same thing, and uh, she was uh, similarly criticized by, you know, radical feminism that won't uh, brook uh, a difference in uh, men and women, uh, which I don't think is the approach to go. I think that we should celebrate our differences because I think each gender has powerful strengths, And I think within uh, our strengths, we all have major things to contribute to our culture. Uh, For example, uh, I would love to see uh, uh, Hillary Clinton become president of the United States, uh, and uh, not just because I think she's most qualified and that sort of thing, but I also really feel like uh, women in leadership roles can have a very important uh, impact on uh, world culture. I think the most sophisticated cultures in the world are in Scandinavia. And uh, what's already been embraced in those cultures are uh, female leaders. And I think, uh, you know, the number of wars uh, declared on the world, if we had, you know, women leading these cultures, uh, we'd have a lot fewer. Uh, I think uh, international relations would improve dramatically. I mean, uh, Merkel in uh, Germany is has this unbelievable... Compassion for the refugees. Obviously, being a you know a, a woman raised in East Germany, uh, she understands uh, the issues with you know cultures that you know suppress their people. And I genuinely feel like uh, you know women have something significant, maybe innate in their own uh, gender, that uh, has an appreciation for all the different things that I think can change us in a positive way. Not that uh, you know male leadership should be completely dispensed with, but uh, um, there's so many positive things that can happen um, if we embrace uh, uh, women as equals in the most positive and real way. So I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of uh, uh, all these different ideas for, I think, all the right reasons.
1: And it's not surprising you have that take because, uh, real quickly, you grew up overseas. Talk about uh, growing up and when you came over to the United States.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think one thing that really benefited me as a U.S. women's national coach is when I competed internationally, it was visceral. It's interesting, when you're an American raised abroad, you spend your life defending American foreign policy, right or wrong. And um, I was defending it. You know, even as a 9- and 10-year-old, I would be attacked uh, in whatever way, you know, the bullying system in that local culture was for you know, bullying an American. I was bullied, Um, and uh, I think a part of what's helped me become a fierce competitor is um, because I had to react to being attacked in all these different cultures for being an American. So when I was given the U.S. Women's National Team reins, I mean, I was going to do everything I could to make sure my team was competitive internationally. And um, I lived and died with every result with those U.S. women. And I killed myself to help each of those women get to the level where we could compete with the world in its own game. Uh, And I was very proud of where we went. Um, And trust me, uh, a pregame motivational chat with any of my women's teams before a game came right from the middle of my soul. Um, And uh, it was genuine um, because I really wanted to prove to the world uh, who the United States was. And I could see a country like Brazil that... You know, back in the day, did absolutely nothing for uh, all the countries in the world. Uh, And here the United States was, you know, dispensing foreign aid at almost every request. And yet, who had the greater prestige internationally? Well, the Brazilians did. Why? Because they had a great soccer team and a great soccer culture. And what they exported was this extraordinary soccer culture. And as a result, their international image was so much better than ours. And so I even looked at, you know, coaching the U.S. women as an opportunity to burnish the American international image. And of course, the only way you do that is by being successful. So for me, uh, coaching the U.S. women was um, not just (laughs) an exercise in sports goodwill. It was an exercise in American foreign policy. So I had incredible motivation uh, to coach that uh, women's team, but also to coach my own women collegially to make sure When they got into the international arena, they could also contribute to uh, the U.S. uh, uh, image and success. Even to this day, when I watch a a U.S. women's national team game, I'm not only rooting for the United States, I'm rooting for every one of my kids that hopefully I did something to contribute in at least some small way to her success on the field internationally. So in a way, I'm still fighting this battle, and um, I'm very proud of, uh, I guess, my My radical patriotism, because uh, I've, you know, defended uh, the American flag my whole life. And a part of uh, what I think has put me in this position is the fact that uh, the first 18 years of my life I spent in foreign countries.
1: I want to get to the NWSL. I want to get to your thoughts on the Under-20 World Cup and how they pulled college players, and I want to end with U.S. soccer player development. But before we do that, there's big news about the fact that Fetzer Field, the house that Anson built, is going to be essentially reshaped, torn down, built to a new stadium. Next year you'll play elsewhere. How excited are you to have that stadium in Chapel Hill?
2: Well, first of all, let me uh, correct you, uh Anson. I did not build a Fetzer Field. It was actually built in 1935. (laughs) But I really feel like uh, (laughs) we're due for uh, renovation because I think uh, we should certainly reconstruct our facilities at least once every 80 or 90 years. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think we're due. Uh, And, yep, uh, in fact, I've got a meeting uh, uh, later this morning uh, about the stadium, and I'm incredibly excited because it's going to serve – Uh, four teams that have won 32 national championships, uh, the men and women's soccer teams at UNC and the reigning uh, men and women's lacrosse national champions. uh, uh, And uh, we're very proud of, uh, uh, you know, the four programs that inhabit this field that was built in 1935. And, yeah, we think, uh, you know, we should uh, renovate it, and so they they are going to do it. Uh, They're going to break ground uh, in May after the lacrosse seasons. Uh, And then uh, uh, hopefully by August of 2018, we'll have a brand-new stadium there that hopefully will uh, continue to uh, improve the image of uh, ACC uh, soccer, uh, men and women's, uh, and ACC uh, uh, lacrosse, men and women's. uh, uh, Because obviously uh, we're very proud of the fact that uh, on both sides of uh, uh, those conferences, men and women, uh, soccer and lacrosse, uh, our conference uh, is extraordinary. And uh, we're certainly proud of that. And we're very excited about what this uh, stadium's going to be and how it's going to serve uh, the kids that compete in it, uh, but also our communities that uh, support the four teams. And so uh, we're, I'm absolutely thrilled.
1: I don't get a vote, but if I did, it's got to be named Anson Dorrance Stadium, but we'll leave that for another day. Okay, (laughs) rounding down, it's got to be that name. All right, Uh, I was with you, Anson, in the booth when the Carolina Courage were here for the WSA. We then saw the WPS and now looks to be going strong, the NWSL. How important is a pro soccer league in this country?
2: Well, you can see it. I mean, you can see the caliber of our league and how much better it's getting. Uh, The caliber of the coaches we're attracting into the league and the fact that uh, you're seeing these kids develop uh, at higher and higher levels. Uh, all of my kids have jumped into the NWSL. I look at them a year or two later, and the league has been fantastic for them. Their games have improved, and uh, I absolutely love it. I think it's putting us in a great position. I think the uh, uh, the fantastic uh, uh, 2015 uh, reigning world championship team for the United States was uh, uh, certainly uh, built through uh, the NWSL and those uh, Uh, fantastic uh, uh, coaches and uh, through uh, Jill and her staff. So I think uh, it's uh, put a nice cherry on top of what I think is a fantastic player development platform in the collegiate game in the United States. Because I genuinely feel like uh, the collegiate game in the U.S. is the best uh, player development platform for the 18- to 22-year-old and even though a lot of these foreign countries have uh, pro leagues where these young kids go into them, I still think, think the American Collegiate Women's Game uh, just does an amazing job helping our kids develop. It expands our player pool like uh, Jill has dipped into uh, for her recent camps. Uh, and uh, I really feel like uh, uh, this whole thing from you know beginning to end in the United States is, is fabulous for uh, our player development. And I'm very excited with uh, everything everyone's doing, including – Uh, The fact that we've got a fantastic uh, owner here and uh, uh, Steve Malik who's going to have an NWSL franchise for us um, as soon as possible uh, at Wake Med Park, uh, which is going to, again, continue to improve the profile of of the game in North Carolina.
1: Yeah, I can't wait for that. Indeed, look forward to uh, bringing back professional soccer to the triangle. Okay, last week we had Michelle French, the head coach of the U.S. Under-20 World Cup team. They're heading over to Papua New Guinea. They're at the, Actually, they left this week on Sunday. And Anson Dorrance, uh, the idea to pull college players and not let them play this college season – Provided a lot of cooperation and a lot of consternation both. What is your take on how that went about? And you've got the floor. Give us your opinion.
2: Yeah, I've never made a secret of this. Uh, I genuinely feel like uh, the collegiate game is such a good level that uh, the uh, uh, U.S. soccer uh, uh, coaches should allow their uh, uh, youth national team players to play into their collegiate seasons. The only two U-20 World Championships that we've won have been won when those coaches allowed their national youth team players to play into their collegiate seasons. The first one was won by Tony De Chico down in Chile and he allowed all of uh, our kids that were playing on both teams to play in with us and then uh, they joined him. Uh, Steve Swanson obviously uh, also would probably lean towards this collegiate ex- uh, experiment uh, because certainly as a collegiate coach he understands this And also he understands the value of uh, the collegiate game for his kids in preparation. They both were world championship coaches, and they both allowed their uh, collegiate kids to play into the collegiate seasons. We have never won a U-20 world championship outside of those windows. And so how the decision was made to not allow the kids to play in because they would have less programming is beyond me. Uh, programming is another way to say, I'm getting my kids ready to win a World Cup. And the programming evidence of the value of the collegiate game is overwhelming. Because whenever there wasn't any collegiate programming for the U-20s, we haven't won. Now, does that mean this team's not going to win? No. I always think we go into these events with the most talent. Uh, and I think we're going to certainly go into this event with the most talent. We've also got a game changer in Mal Pew, So I do think this team can win. But I think it would have been a better team had all of these kids been permitted to jump in with their collegiate teams, Uh, because I think that polishes and hones and gets the kids ready. You can organize a team uh, uh, relatively quickly if you have elite players without having them going to these camps to become familiar with one another, just with the regular programming that they would do throughout the rest of the year in getting these kids ready. And that would have been a much better way to to spend – your programming platforms
1: sticking with your thoughts on u.s soccer you also have a deep opinion on u.s soccer's player development plan again anson with the floor yours break it down your thoughts please
2: what uh, i don't like what's happening right now in uh uh, in soccer circles is we're developing this warfare that has become vogue in our political circles What we have now are Democrats vilifying every Republican platform. We have Republicans vilifying every uh, Democratic platform. And then the thing that makes it even worse is, all of a sudden, uh, a Republican gets into office and the Democrats are hoping they fail, and then a Democrat gets into office, and the Republicans are not only hoping they fail, but doing everything they can to make sure uh, they fail. And so what ends up being sacrificed is the country. What's horrific right now in our political spectrum is the Republicans would rather see the country fail while a Democrat is leading it than the country succeed, uh, just because it would reflect uh, uh, well on the Democratic Party and poorly on the Republican Party. And it's just maddening. I can't believe that's where we've gone. And it looks like that's the direction we're going in with the different factions in soccer. U.S. soccer has a moral imperative to unify all of us, and they don't. They declare a war in all the different pockets, and so what ends up happening is you've got all these alliances of, you know, the ECNL that uh, thinks they do the best job in player development, U.S. soccer that thinks they do the best job. The colleges thinking they do the best job, but, you know the NWSL thinking they do the best job. And uh, everyone's pointing fingers towards the other platforms, claiming they're not doing a good enough job uh, uh, in preparing players for their own environments, and it's just maddening. Who's in the best position to sort of unite the clans? Well, U.S. soccer is, and yet U.S. soccer seems to do the opposite. They blow up the ECNL which is insane. I mean, I was sitting in the room when the uh, the Boys Academy was starting, and I was sitting in the room with all these fantastic youth leaders in the girls' and women's game, and I watched them with Christian Lavers as a very sensible voice in the room uh, assemble all these disparate groups to basically construct a platform to help our girls develop something comparable to the Boys Academy. Um, and U.S. soccer either didn't have time, the interest, or the money, or the uh, the, the bodies to, to lead this group. And so this fabulous group of leaders stepped in and did an incredible job with the ECNL. The ECNL contributed to the growth of Mal Pugh, and obviously the majority of that goes to Mal Pugh. I don't pretend to feel like it's just the environment itself that develops a player. But Mal Pugh was developed certainly through her own drive and instincts and her you know, family leadership and all the elements that go into making a great player. Certainly the club she came from, which was fantastic with great coaches from top to bottom, but also the ECNL was a part of it. Mal Pugh is unquestionably the best player her age in the world. And she came through this this ECNL system. And now all of a sudden, because there's a quirk here and a difference there, um, we're going to, you know, blow up the ECNL or have them now compete with the uh, girls' academy uh, just because we don't have the patience to sit down as a, as a leadership group and embrace all of these extraordinary pioneers at all these different levels that should have uh, a voice at the table to contribute to a consensus of what player development should be. And then uh, I have this huge fear that all of a sudden from on high – You know, tablets are going to be handed down from, uh, you know, Mount Sinai and the girls and women's game telling us all how we have to play, what system, you know, what style, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As if the evolution of the uh, uh, soccer game uh, uh, internationally isn't some renegade coach trying a different system, uh, starting to press, uh, or playing a low line of confrontation, playing a counterattack game as if the evolution of our game isn't made up of all these different ideas with fabulous, fertile, creative minds as we all try to fence with one another uh, and we steal from one one another to try to come up with ideas that will help us become uh, better coaches and help our players get to their potential. And I'm just really concerned that uh, we're all going to war with each other, and I just don't like it. And I do compare it to the current political climate, I mean every time I get a call from some census taker or survey taker I don't hang the phone up I said yeah I want to answer all your questions and then I spend my time on the phone basically giving them a piece of my mind about how incredibly destructive our political parties are and uh, the people that lead them are I mean uh, let's embrace each other let's find each other's strengths let's see you know what works on you know both sides of the political divide but also in all these different uh, uh, soccer elements that are right now warring with one another. Just, uh, it, it just angers me. It's just it's, it's insane. Um, and so, yes, I would love to see uh, much more cooperation. Uh, I would love for you know uh, U.S. soccer to sit down with uh, our leadership, the youth leadership, and figure out what the best ways uh, there are to develop players. And then if you have an idea that you're absolutely sold on, sell me on it. I'm listening. Um, You know, sit down with us every year at the convention. Uh, Tell us what worked and what didn't with your World Cup and Olympic teams and convince us that, you know, maybe we should try doing this or that or the other thing and share why. That's the way I think uh, we should develop soccer in this country, not by going uh, to war with each other.
1: Fantastic, Anson Dorrance, and I know you'll talk more about that at the NSCA convention coming up in Los Angeles. Anson Dorrance will be featured with one of the NSCAA spotlights. We end with the notion you are inducted into the Hall of Fame for U.S. Soccer in 2008. You received the Honor Award in 2010 for the NSCAA. I was there, Anson. I know it was very special. I know the NSCAA is very special to you.
2: Oh, yeah, because what I absolutely love about this organization is – it would say all the things I've just shared. They are unifiers. Their one agenda is the development of the game. Uh, People don't get into positions of power in the NCAA and then lord over the rest of us. We have a wonderful system of succession where basically uh, we bleed people to death by working them during their tenure as leaders in our organization. We retire them gracefully. We honor them in the most positive way. I have nothing but incredibly positive thoughts about the way our organization was constructed, all of our leaders, going back to the beginning, and their vision for what, uh, you know, leadership should be. And as a result, uh, even though I'm getting old and, you know, I'm you know running out of energy, so I won't accept too many things that they asked me to do. But uh, whenever they ask me to make a presentation at the convention, I certainly will. Uh, I was in their coaching school forever, It finally wore me out. Uh, But I love uh, that organization, uh, their leadership philosophy. Uh, So much of what I've learned about the game came from them. I still learn from their convention every year. I go to all the great speakers that they bring in, and I always come back from the convention, having learned a heck of a lot about uh, my game, about my place in it. I'm inspired by the leaders uh, that uh, we pick. Uh, for this organization and uh, the incredibly positive vibe that I get whenever I leave the convention and I really wish that uh, you know US uh, soccer player development would take a page out of the NSCAA book because I think they've gotten it right.
1: All right we started with the right here right now we end with the right here right now. I saw your team against Florida State an impressive performance you went on to win against Virginia on Sunday an impressive performance Knowing the parity, knowing all the great teams, what does North Carolina do to add another piece of hardware to their bookshelves that can't contain any more hardware and win a national championship?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I talk about this all the time. I even talk about it with my kids. I mean, for you to make a a successful run in the NCAA tournament, you certainly have to have a good team. But those aren't the only pieces. You have to have good luck. You have to have the absence of bad luck. Um, You've got to, you know, stay healthy. Um, and there's so many different elements, and we don't pretend to have an extraordinarily talented team. There are teams out there right now uh, uh, they are going to get high seeds in the tournament that have more talent than we do. Um, there are going to be teams that are going to have a, you know, a better bracket and route to the championship, uh, which you also need if you want to try to win. Um, so we don't pretend to have all those advantages. But uh, what I absolutely love about this game, uh, even this year, is uh, – the kids. I mean, I love my kids. Uh, they they work hard for me. They work hard for each other. Uh, they've improved dramatically each week. Uh, and I credit uh, uh, my fantastic staff, obviously my long-term assistant uh, in Bill Palladino, uh, uh, my recruiter in uh, Chris Ducor. I also added uh, Damon Nehas, who's absolutely brilliant. And I'm still a little pissed at U.S. soccer for firing him from the U-17 national youth team. Because this man is a soccer genius. Uh, I can't believe how much I've learned from him already in his short tenure with me <clears throat> as my uh, uh, freshly new assistant. And uh, the reason we've continued to improve are, uh, you know, this great staff I have. And, uh, you know, obviously we'd love to, you know, get a good seat and, and do well in the NCAA tournament, but I don't pretend uh, to feel that uh, our team is, you know, going <laughs> to. Crush some of these amazingly talented teams that are out there right now, but we're certainly going to do our best, and uh, we're hoping when we land in a bracket, uh, uh, we're going to put the fear of you know the Tar Heels and some teams as they prepare for us, because uh, we're certainly going to scrap and uh, you know fight like hell to uh, to have the best result we can.
1: Incredible. Anson Dorrance going deep today, comparing the current political climate to U.S. soccer's current state of player development like only Anson can. Anson, a true pleasure spending time with you anytime, anywhere. Thanks for all you have done for all of us in the game, and thanks for continuing to fight the good fight. We know there are more wins coming your way, Coach. Thanks so much.
2: Dean, I've enjoyed it myself. Thank you, sir.
1: Okay, so soak that in. Deep thoughts from Anson Dorrance. Hope you enjoyed it. We come back. Paul Kennedy
3: from Soccer America. This is the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. When you join the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com.
1: What an amazing visit with Anson Dorrance. I told you he did not hold back giving his opinions on U.S. soccer player development. An unbelievable interview with Anson. Now I am pleased to be joined by the 31-year editor of Soccer America, The Last Ten as editor-in-chief talking about, hey, we keep saying that legendary word. Paul Kennedy is a legend, and he joins me now. Paul, thanks for being with us.
4: Oh, you're very welcome, Dean. Great to hear from you.
1: Yeah, Paul, I love your story because you think about Soccer America, and here we have the NSCA College Soccer Podcast. And when Soccer America started, college soccer was soccer in America. Talk about uh, how you got started and your timing, particularly coming from Richmond.
4: My background is I went to law school. I went to law school at the University of Richmond. We got there in 1978, which was the same year Bruce Arena started at the University of Virginia as a men's coach. Anson, at that time, was uh, uh, just starting out at the University of North Carolina and, like myself, uh, was, uh, was a law student. People don't realize that his original plan was, was to, to go into law. And I always remember the story of uh, going to see him one day and asking him, well, uh, why, you know, why, why was he coaching? Why wasn't he continuing to pursue his uh, law degree? And he said, well, you know, uh, why would I do that when I can uh, do what I would do for free and get paid for it? <laughs> and that's something that I always remembered as something that, uh, that that stuck with me. And that was one of the things that uh, that I thought of too. And that I practiced law for three years, but always wanted to get involved in soccer. So I moved to Soccer America uh, here in Berkeley in 1885. But by that time, I had, you know, I had spent a lot of time college, following college soccer and it really started to grow at Virginia, at uh, North Carolina, at Duke, at NC State, at Clemson. Uh, I would go and see uh, William Mary with Al Albert, uh, Old Dominion, George Mason. So, so you had uh, all these pros that were just starting, starting to take off. And it was a great time for... Uh, you know, to, to see the growth. And then when I got to California to become the editor of Soccer America, our first couple of years before, uh, even before the U S men's national team took off, when it became clear the U S was going to get the world cup in 1994, uh, college soccer was our bread and butter. And it was something we were able to really, uh, to grow the magazine because, uh, you couldn't get the information we provide for college soccer anywhere else. And, uh, at schools, you know, all the kids would get subscriptions and their parents would and stuff like that. So that was really the sort of the the foundation for for our business for many years.
1: Well, obviously the landscape of soccer in America has changed so much. Major League Soccer now 20 years strong, the US national teams so successful, the women continue to win world cups and the like. But as you take a look at it before we get into the current college scene, what is college soccer 's landscape because if you 've listened to my show at all, Sasha Sorowsky fighting for that year round academic schedule, and so many of our coaches saying college soccer will always have a place here in the united states
4: that 's obviously true, and that 's something that you know even as MLs makes a big push with its development academy and, and uh, uh, other clubs do that is you know the, the first priority for most kids and their parents is to go to, to, to college, and you still have you know, on both the men's side and the women's side, you really see the impact of the growth of the game with what I would determine as viral, viral or very organic uh, growth in terms of fan support. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, you know, the future fans and future uh, executives of American pro soccer on the men and women's side, you'll see them every weekend, uh, uh, every Thursday night on the women's side a lot of times, or Friday night on the men's side out at college soccer games.
1: Well, that's so well said, as we're joined by Paul Kennedy, the Editor-in-Chief at Soccer America. All right, let's get to work here. The women's conference tournaments have already started. Give me your take as you think about the NSCA Top 25, and I'll go ahead and throw it at you, the Soccer America Top 25. Who are the teams to watch as we get into conference tournament play and then the NCAA tournament on the women's side first? Your storylines, Paul.
4: Um, I think the, you know you have uh, a couple of teams. You have a surprise that with West Virginia has been, um, number one for much of the, much of the year, you got South Carolina, which in the SEC, which is the only remaining unbeaten team. I think the big surprise so far is you are already in the ACC, at Virginia and Duke were out last weekend, so they haven't even made it to the Final Four. Penn State lost directors in the Big Ten tournament, and Penn State is a national champion. Obviously, they were impacted a lot. They had five players in the U.S. Under 20 women's national team who uh, redshirted this fall. Um, you know, you had an, even in the SEC you had. Texas A&M, which was a big team last year, uh, they needed to win last night in a, in a playing game just to, to go to the quarterfinals. So I think this year you have a pretty wide open tournament in most of the polls. You don't even have an ACC team in the top five, which, is, you know, which on the women's side is really really unheard of. And I would finally say a couple of uh, you know, outsiders I would throw in for you would be you've got you know, USC in the, the Pac-12, Georgetown, Georgetown we've really liked all year, and, uh, you know, BYU with uh, Ashley Hatch has been, uh, you know, is, is again, a, a team to watch.
1: Yeah, of course, Ashley Hatch now getting recognition with the U.S. team. Jennifer Rockwood built that program. Incredible story. Nikki Izzo-Brown, you talked about her at West Virginia as well. All right, switching to the men's side. Their conference tournaments begin this weekend. What do you like uh, from men's soccer stories at the Division One level, college soccer?
4: For, for however strong a lot of programs are, I would go out on a limb and say this is one of the few years where you have a clear favorite, and that's Maryland. Maryland's unbeaten. Maryland's got probably a half a dozen players who could be in MLS next year. So uh, you know they they are really uh, looking strong. You know even though you have the uh, the ACC with probably seven teams that could uh, could battle it out for uh, you know uh, spots in the men's college cup this year. So. Uh, um, you know, you also have, you know, like it's always been on the men's side, you have a couple of teams that come out of nowhere, um, who are doing really well this year. The two that stick out are Loyola, Illinois, and, uh, UMass Lowell, uh, US, UMass Lowell's got a, a bunch of kids from Croatia they've brought in and done really well. And I think that's something that, uh, on the men's side, you really see where, uh, you know, a few key recruits, uh, can really turn out a, turn around a program, uh,
1: Quickly. not only is maryland number one in the country although they are living dangerously by the way i did that game against michigan on the big 10 network they were down two nothing at half the game before against delaware they were down two nothing they came back to win both of those in double overtime because well they got one of the best coaches in the country in sasso they also have the best crowds even number one in attendance as well on the college soccer scene but maryland not making it look easy all of the time paul but they know how to win right
4: yeah i mean they 've uh, you know i know sasha said after uh, after their last win that uh you know that what he what pleased him was that even though they were down, both the players on the field and everyone on the bench you know didn 't panic you know for a second and they uh, they were confident to get back into the game but as you say uh the last i'd probably say three or four weeks uh, the number of goals they 've given up is is a concern, but at the same time they have such firepower. Uh, and so many ways they can score that uh, you really gotta like them.
1: What about the ACC, though? I mean, you got so many great teams that almost might be to their detriment as far as finding one to rise to the top because they beat up on each other every week. The talent is so great.
4: I know. I mean, uh, you know, you got Carolina, Wake. Uh, you know, in our in our poll this week, I think, I think uh, you know Notre Dame is 16, and uh, about a month ago they were probably two or three in the country, and, and that's only because. They've played such good uh, competition every week that uh, it's just hard to stay on top.
1: Paul, let's uh, go back memory lane because I was the press officer for the 92 Olympic team, the 94 World Cup team, even in some stuff with the women team. So I got to hang out with you back in the late 80s, early 90s, you and Mike and even Paul Gardner and and some people that have come and gone to Soccer America. But here you are still. But uh, what do you remember about those days uh, back in the early 90s? That was good times, Paul.
4: Oh, man it was, it was uh it was really when we were all growing the sport and uh you know it, it isn't like today where you have such you know uh, you have such coverage meaning the, the 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 media coverage has changed you know obviously just as the media has changed in this country where uh there's a lot more interest even though there are not a lot more say daily newspapers covering it but uh back in the old days you know you had uh uh you know players who were you know were starved to be uh, to be recognized, and that really made it great I mean you know you look back at the early nineties, you had a lot of guys, whether it was Alexi Lalas or Joe Max Moore, guys like that, who uh, literally went from uh, playing college soccer one day and they were in the national team the next and and doing well um, you know you even had you know Claudia Raina was was star of Virginia won back to back titles with u v a and uh you know he Uh, He would have been a star on the World Cup team in '94, except for he got hurt in the last game.
1: Yep, indeed. All right. Also, during those 31 years, most of them, you uh, worked for Clay Burling and worked for and with a young woman named Lynn Burling-Manuel, who's now the first-ever female CEO of the NSCAA. How proud are you of Lynn, and what do you think she'll do for the leadership of the NSCAA? Well,
4: being, you know, Lynn has uh, you know, been great you know, for me in terms of, of my career, of helping me along, and she and Clay and her family. And uh, you know, she really brings a lot to the organization in terms of her soccer background, but especially in her her business background of, of understanding the soccer market, what works, uh, what, you know, what doesn't work, and uh, you know how to to take the the organization forward, especially an organization that is as as, as diverse as the NSCA with with uh, coaches with so many backgrounds and so many interests that to have someone who can help. Uh, uh, Communicate what the goals are and uh, prioritize what needs to be done is really important, and Lynn uh, Lynn's doing a great job with that.
1: Paul Kennedy, the editor-in-chief at Soccer America, and the man knows his college soccer. That's why we had to have him on the NSCA College Soccer Podcast. Paul, be sure on Sunday, 4 o'clock, I'll have Maryland again against either Michigan or Rutgers, 4 o'clock at the Big Ten Network. Tune in if you can. And more importantly, I hope to see you in Los Angeles as part of the NSCA convention. I'm a big fan. You're a super humble man, Paul. Thanks for being with us.
4: Oh, you're very welcome, and uh, all the best in the rest of the season. So
1: great to spend time with Soccer America's Paul Kennedy. Up next, we'll talk D2 Soccer with com's editor and staff writer, Travis Clark. That and more on the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast.
0: The 2017 NSCAA convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. With more space and unique experiences, you won't want to miss out on the largest gathering of soccer coaches and administrators in the world. Register today at NSCAA.com.
1: Okay, as we told you from the start, we spent extra time with the legendary head soccer coach at the University of North Carolina, Anson Dorrance, and he went deep talking about player development for U.S. soccer and his very sharp opinions. also want to thank Paul Kennedy from Soccer America for a look at Division I men and women's soccer. Now a quick look at Division II. We're pleased to welcome back one of our early guests on the NSCA College Soccer Podcast. It's Travis Clark, an editor and senior staff writer for Topdoorsoccer.com. Travis, thanks for being on the program yet again. No problem. Thanks for having me on. All right, it's D two time. Let's first start with the women, since we had Ansa Dorrance on as well. What's the storylines, the teams to watch as we approach the NCAA tournament Division two style?
5: Well, as I mentioned last time, the you know the big the big program when we're talking D two women's soccer is Grand Valley State, and uh, you know once again, if you're looking at the latest NSCA rankings, they're they're right up there at the top, but they're actually number two uh, behind Western Washington. with we just put together a, a very good run of itself. 16 games unbeaten, pretty strong defensive record, getting timely goals at, at appropriate moments. Uh, Grand Valley State obviously can't be slept upon. Uh, D2 player of the year, Marty Corby, from last year, leading the nation in assists with 21, which is a seven ahead of your next closest competitor. So they're, they're this offensive juggernaut that you kind of would expect to keep rolling as postseason play comes along. Uh, and, and it would be great to see the two match up at some point in the tournament once tournament time gets here. But uh, one team that also deserves mention is Westchester up in Pennsylvania in the Philadelphia region, 15 games perfect, uh, having lost a game all year, having tied a game, 15-0 and at this point in the season and looking to uh, translate regular season success into postseason success. So uh, those, those are a few of the storylines. Uh, one sort of crossover, I know the UC San Diego bunch, two teams in the top ten, the men's and the women's program, put together a very impressive regular season on the women's side, uh, going on un- a perfect record in the conference, the CCAA. So uh, those are just some of the storylines. Obviously, I think one thing that I've kind of noticed is that there's you know, there been the usual assortment of upsets that you kind of expect to see in college game, but um, you know, there's been this trend over the past few weeks of the Western Washington, Grand Valley State, Westchester kind of one, two, three right now, You know, Central Missouri, Columbus State up there as well. So It'll be interesting to see if those kind of five, ten teams at the top of the NCAA rankings can, you know, lean on that success and make that stick once conference tournament play begins and then uh, into NCAA play. Because you know, obviously, as we know, only one team is going to be happy at the end of the year. So. Uh, which one will be from that group?
1: Well, I'm proud to say that uh, four of those five teams that you just mentioned, we had their four head coaches on the NSCA College Soccer Podcast on the women's side. You touched a little bit on the men as it relates to San Diego, but what are the storylines for D2 men?
5: I think uh, when you're looking at that, there's been a little bit more uh, volatility at the top. A, a few more upsets here and there. You know, Charleston and West Virginia was doing well earlier in the season. And you know, they're still up there, but they're no longer the number one team. One team that uh, as I'm looking sort of at the whole field that continues to come up is uh, Simon Frazier uh, up, up in the Pacific Northwest, actually, and uh, I believe in the Vancouver area, British Columbia. Uh, There's a school that's right in the thick of things, haven't lost a game all year, uh, putting together some solid performances against pretty good opposition. So, you know, I'm looking for them, you know, can they crack that um, the, the postseason code, if you will, um, to, to kind of throw that cliche out there, but, uh, you know, zooming back east, uh, one of the players that has caught my attention as well, uh, Will Roberts uh, from Charleston. He's up there in the goals. You know, he creates a lot for his team. Uh, you know, and you know, when we're looking at soccer, it's such a team game, but you know, individual players can, in, in, especially in the postseason, postseason, excuse me, can translate their quality, their individual abilities to those moments that can, you know provide the difference when the margins are so thin in the postseason between, you know, a season extending and a season ending. So, uh, you know, I think looking at sort of some of these individuals, um, you know, a guy like Roberts, can he provide that difference uh, when we're talking about knockout soccer?
1: Travis, remind us when and where the D2 championships are going to be played for both men and women.
5: They're actually going to be played the same time, same place, uh, December 1st and 3rd at Swope Park in Kansas City, Missouri, home of the School Park Rangers, the USL side. So it's a nice venue. Should be a good place for fans to check out some good soccer.
1: Just down the road from the NSCAA headquarters. Good job, Travis Clark. Thanks for being on the program. Hope to check in with you just before that championship.
5: No problem. Happy to be on anytime.
1: Well done, Travis. Up next, Chad Waller talks NAIA men's and women's soccer as the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast Episode 10 rolls on.
0: By being a member of the NSCAA, you are a part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find like-minded people passionate about bettering themselves to help better their players and ultimately to better the game.
6: Welcome to the NSCA podcast for the week of October 31st. I'm Chad Waller, giving you exciting information again on all news around NAIA men's soccer. Let's get started. It's postseason time in NAI men's soccer as all 19 conferences and the Association of Independent Institutions will engage in conference tournaments this week. Nearly 200 schools are bidding for one of the 24 automatic berths for the NAI National Championship. An automatic berth is earned by either winning that conference's regular season championship or conference tournament championship. Check out NAI.org for the latest scores and updates on all of the conference tournament action. We already have six programs that have automatically qualified for the 32-team national championship opening round due to winning their respective conference regular season titles. Those six teams are Hannibal LaGrange out of Missouri, Mid-America Nazarene out of Kansas, Northwestern Ohio, Oklahoma Wesleyan, Olivet Nazarene out of Illinois, and Rocky Mountain out of Montana. Looking at the latest NAM Men's Soccer Coaches Top 25 poll, Oklahoma Wesleyan University hangs on to the number one spot this week. The Eagles are the top-ranked team for the seventh straight week and ended the regular season with a perfect 17-0-1 record. Overall, Oklahoma Wesleyan has not suffered a loss since September 22nd of last year, which is an undefeated streak of 33 straight Windsor ties. The Eagles' undefeated streak is tied for fifth-longest in NAI history, matching the Lindsey Wilson program that did not lose in 33 straight matches during the 11 and 12 seasons. The all-time NAI record in men's soccer is 66 straight wins or ties done by Rio Grande from 2002-04. to 04. Looking at the numbers further for Oakland and Wesleyan, in 18 matches this year, the Eagles own 13 shutouts. The offense has outscored the opposition by a 63-6 to 6 mark. Aforementioned earlier, the Eagles have already clinched a berth in the national championship opening round for November 19th. The rest of the top five in the coaches poll stays unchanged for the second straight week, including Hastings at the second spot. The Broncos are tied with Oklahoma Wesleyan for the most wins in the NAI at 17. Three teams still remain undefeated in NAI circles, including Oklahoma Wesleyan, Hastings, and sixth-ranked Campbellsville out of Kentucky. Number 12, Bryan, was knocked from the undefeated ranks last week. Campbellsville is currently riding a 31-match undefeated streak dating back to the 2015 season. With a 13-0-2 mark this year, the Tigers are 27-0-4 during that streak and take that undefeated record into the Mid-South Conference Tournament that begins Friday. Individually speaking, Andrew Revanalis of Lindsey Wilson College has been named the NAI National Men's Soccer Offensive Player of the Week, and Luka Stojanovic of Oklahoma Wesleyan has been named the NAI National Men's Soccer Defensive Player of the Week. In one match last week, Revanalis recorded a career-high four goals and three assists, tailing 11 points as the Blue Raiders defeated Shawnee State. He now has five multi-games this season. In two matches last week in goal, Stojanovic recorded 12 saves as he led Oklahoma Wesleyan to two shutout victories. On the year, Stojanovic has posted 12 shutouts and ranks number one in the NAI in goals against average at 0.25. Looking ahead, the 31-team national championship field will be announced on Monday, November 14th at noon central. Check back on NAI.org for a link to the live selection show.
1: That's Chad Waller talking NAIA men's soccer. Now let's see what he has to say about NAIA women's soccer.
6: It's the most exciting time of year in NAIA women's soccer as all 19 conferences and the Association of Independent Institutions will participate in conference tournaments this week. Nearly 200 schools in NAIA soccer are bidding for one of the 23 automatic berths for the NAI national championship. An automatic berth is earned by either winning that conference's regular season championship or conference tournament championship. Log on to NAI.org for all the women's soccer conference tournament updates. Looking at the coaches' top 25 poll, Spring Arbor again dominates as they earn the ninth straight number one ranking in the NAI coaches poll. The Cougars are riding an unbelievable 36 match unbeaten streak. During that streak, they've gone 35-0-1. This year, the Cougars are 16 0 1 heading into the Crossroads League Conference Tournament. That 36 match on beaten streak for Spring Arbors is not the longest all time in the NAI. The Cougars sit at number 5 all time behind former member Azusa Pacific's 37 match on beaten streak. The all time leader is Mobile out of Alabama with a 48 match undefeated streak down in the 99 and 2000 seasons. There are 14 of the 19 conferences represented in the coaches' poll this week, including newcomer number 24 at Georgetown out of Kentucky. The last time Georgetown was ranked was earlier this year on October 18th. There are still two undefeated teams in women's soccer, Spring Arbor and Biola University out of California. Looking at defensive category, Columbia out of Missouri leads the NAI in shutouts with 15 in a span of 18 matches. Individually speaking, Yvonne Ploggue of Lindsey Wilson has been named the NAI National Women 's Soccer Offensive Player of the Week, and Morgan Hammond of St. Francis out of Indiana has been named the NAI National Women's Soccer Defensive Player of the Week. Plogue scored all three Lindsey Wilson wins last week, totaling four goals and two assists to help the number four ranked Blue Raiders extend their winning streak to ten straight games. she's recorded seven goals and five assists tallying 19 points on the season as the Blue Raiders have earned a Mid-South Conference regular season championship. In one match this past week, Hammonds recorded nine saves against then number 17 Taylor. She posted her third highest season high in saves in a game with nine, five less than a season high done earlier this year. Sienna Heights University joined the 400-win club on October 19th as the Saints defeated Indiana Tech 3-1. Sienna Heights currently sits at number three on the all-time NAS Women's Soccer Program wins list. Coach Brian Harvey of Oklahoma City joined the 350-win club as he currently sits at 350. He ranks number one on the NAI Women's Coaches Active Wins list. Looking ahead in a couple weeks, the 31-team national championship field will be announced on Monday, November 14th at noon central time. Check back on NAI.org for a link to the live selection show. Needing more NAI soccer news? Make sure to check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using the hashtag NAISoccer.
1: Chad Waller doing what Chad Waller does, talking NAIA men's and women's soccer. When we come back, we wrap up the show talking to Eric Immler. He won three national championships at Virginia. He represented the USA in the 92 Olympics. He played in Major League Soccer, but now his focus is to make our young players better. Better soccer players, not just athletes. We'll hear his take when we come back on the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast.
0: The 2017 NSCAA convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. With more space and unique experiences, you won't want to miss out on the largest gathering of soccer coaches and administrators in the world. Register today at NSCAA.com.
1: We wrap up our show talking to Eric Immler. Eric Immler played at the University of Virginia from 1989 to 92, winning 3 NCAA championships before being part of the 1992 US Olympic team. In Barcelona and later playing in the MLS for DC United and the New England Revolution. After stints with two USL teams following his time in the MLS, he ended his professional career in 2000 and today runs the Youth Academy program for a small club in Charlotte, North Carolina. While consistently coaching at the youth level, Eric has also held various posts at the college level as well. Assistant coach at the University of Virginia immediately after completing his senior year, head women's coach at D two Belmont Abbey College, and assistant coach coach with the University of Kentucky men's program, but now his focus is solely on youth player development, and with that, we welcome Eric Imler, or Emu, as his friends know him, and as I know him. I was with that 92 Olympic team. Emu, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much, Nate yeah honor to have you on. how do you see your role in youth development as it pertains to a majority of this broadcast audience, the college soccer coach?
7: well, you know these days as you mentioned in the in the intro is uh, I spend my my time and my world is is youth and when I say youth it's it's a majority of it is under twelve. I'm just trying to create better players what I recall seeing is a majority of college it's not every single program but a majority of college soccer to me these days is big, strong, physical, very organized. And uh, look, if if we limit our risk, we give ourselves a chance to stay in the game. More of a we're not going to lose mentality versus a, a playing to win mentality. And there's a it's a fine line. It sounds a lot the same, but there's a big difference. During my time at Virginia. We had a very, very talented team. Um, I was surrounded by very accomplished players that went on to play a long time in the pro level. When we would go out, we would play a majority of these teams that looked at us on paper and said, you know what, let's stay back, let's park the bus, you know, to use a, a Mourinho term, let's park the bus, let's stay organized, and let's give nothing away, and maybe we catch them on a counter or a restart, and we can steal this game. That was the approach of most teams, and then it was it was about us breaking them down and finding a way to open them up and uh, and, 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 and finding a goal. I feel like a, a lot of college soccer these days is is kind of that same mentality. It's we've got athletes we're going to recruit. We're going to get them really really organized. But keep in mind this is an incredibly complex question. It's a com- incredibly complex uh, situation with the NCAA and scheduling and, you know, the players and, and, and you know, just so many different facets go into solving this problem. Being down at the youth game, I just want to try and make it better. My job is to I, – I, I don't want to – I don't want the same – the same old, same old. I want to break the status quo. Um, I want to develop a, a different type of player, something different that a college coach can choose from. I want our teams to play differently. I want our players to be able to solve problems. I don't want them to just be able to compete and be physical. It's a process. It takes a long, long time, but that's my world these days.
1: Yeah, you talk about needing a concerted effort between college programs and the youth programs to encourage more attacking styles of play. How do you go about doing that, Eric?
7: When I was uh, an assistant at Kentucky, one of my more recent gigs, you know, it, was, it was about me getting out and, and doing as much as I can with the local soccer programs. Keeping in mind that most college coaching staffs are trying to juggle between midweek games, weekend games, travel. You know, you're cramming uh, an entire season into a two-and-a-half, three-month period, so there's not a whole lot of downtime. I want those coaches to get out into the community and, and offer more expose them to what they want their surrounding communities to support their college program, to come out and see them play, to get out and share the knowledge, uh, just to do as much as they can with the local programs and pull them in. These college programs are so busy and so taxed with so much that the time is very limited that they can get out and and, and spread the wealth, spread the love with the local community and, and, and pull them in.
1: One of the things that uh, you kind of touched on is you want the game to develop in all areas by creating more soccer players and not just relying on athletes to do all this tenacious hard work.
7: It's the default, right? To develop a creative soccer player, one who has the technical proficiency to handle the ball under pressure, one that can be smart about solving problems on the field, who's tactically aware and sharp and the coach that pulls it all together of how we're trying to play as opposed to that that coach that takes a group of players and says we're going to get numbers behind the ball, we're going to defend like mad, and we're just going to try and catch them on the counter and use our athleticism to kick the ball forward and go and try and steal a goal. It takes a whole lot more work. It takes a whole lot more of a plan and the time to, to execute. Having a vision like how do we develop a technical player? How do we develop a really intelligent soccer player, a thinker? You know, that doesn't happen overnight. Athleticism is God-given for the most part. Yes, it can be developed, and, you know, to a certain extent. But if I find athletes that can run hard, who are big, who are strong, who are fast, athleticism usually wins. So what do we want to do down here at the bottom of the game? Do we want to develop teams that win? The ultimate is developing teams that have that winning mentality but do it with style. Can knock the ball around, can keep the ball, can use their athleticism to win one one v one battles. But there's a style and a creativity and a, and a class about the way they're trying to play. You know that that's the creme de la creme. You know you you need athleticism to win, but you need smarts and you need technique and you need all that to to have a uh, an attractive soccer game. That's what we're after. Is how do we harness the athleticism, but we, we add the smarts and the technique at a young age to just continue to develop that year after year after year. I think that's what every youth soccer club wants to be about. will tout on their website, especially in May during tryout season, but at the end of the day, youth soccer has become more and more of a of a business, and so, you know, if we win, it's going to attract more people. More people allows me to have more money coming into the coffers, and I can do more as a club. You know, if my teams are competing in state tournaments, and you know, more and more players want to be a part of this winner, then, hey, that's a good thing for the business.
1: Eric Immler, a man on a mission. He's had a great career, and it's only beginning, actually, as a coach. He also has a blog, Eric, We End, and we're going to talk to you more after the college season, but where can people find your blog and what you're trying to preach, what your message is?
7: appreciate that, Dean. Um, the website is called uh, can't pass, can't play. So www.can'tpasscan'tplay. can't play. No apostrophes, no periods, no nothing. Just uh, www.can'tpasscan'tplay. can't play. I just use it as a place to kind of spew ideas and hope to, uh, you know, hear from the audience of, of what they think. Everybody's got an opinion. so.
1: Boy, I love that. Can't pass, can't play. That's really kind of the crutch of your message, right? If you if you can't pass the ball and see down the field, you can't get it done, right, Eric? <laughs> you
7: can look at it that way for sure.
1: All right, Eric Imler, thanks for being with us, and we look forward to uh, having more time with you next year.
7: Great show, Dean. Love it. Keep up the good work.
1: What a great show. Thanks to Eric Imler and all of our guests, including the legendary Anson Dorrance, head coach of the UNC women's soccer team, Paul Kennedy from Soccer America, Travis Clark from TopDoorSoccer.com, and Chad Waller from the NAIA. For each and every one of them, my name's Dean Linke. We'll be back next week to talk NCAA tournament time at every single level. I promise you that. Thanks for listening to the NSCAA
3: College Soccer Podcast. When you join the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com.